This week's episode is sponsored by the Metagamers. This group of game players will let you know what the rules are, what your options are, and break your immersion just so they can help you be as immersed as possible. They're as useful as you want them to be and not nearly as annoying as you think. Call the Metagamers for all your metagaming advice at 1-800-META-ING. The number is not a real number, so please don't call. This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music at our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Welcome to the 493rd episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. This week's a little different as we're bringing you a segment called Off the Cuff, where we just take an idea we heard about in TTRPGs and discuss it amongst us for a little while. Let us know what you think, because these are the kind of episodes you'll be getting when we go on holiday break. Welcome to MMP Off the Cuff. This is where we have basically one sentence and we do, you know, 30 to 40 minutes on one sentence of information from a role-playing game topic. Phil, feel free to introduce this topic. So this past weekend, a meme was traveling around the Twitters. It's a visual thing, so I'm not going to go into it. I'll just sum up what it meant. It was talking about the difficulties about this GM who didn't like metagaming. And in fact, their comment was, if you metagame at the table, I'm raising the DC of this check. Personally, I'm going to go out on a limb on this, find that to be kind of a dick move. Yeah, especially if it wasn't yeah. d- discussed like in a session zero or beforehand. Yeah, that's not even a kind of a dick move. That's just a dick move. Yeah. Just a dick move. That's just a dick move. But that's not what I wanted to focus on. Because we all agree it's a dick move. We're not going to have a whole conversation on that. I should I, say that it was a bad dick move because there are, you know, sometimes dick moves are good, but not in that case. So. No, I think pretty much the connotation is a dick move is bad. I know. I'm just teasing you. I was thinking, I, I, I think he was going with the sexual innuendo on yes. that, but. I mean, that's different. Yes, of course. That's <laughs> and that's where, that's where it was going with yeah, that. I, I see. Was going with that. Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> talking about metagaming and role playing and the idea of immersion versus metagaming <clears throat> and whether one is good one is bad. I actually am a fan of both. Me too. And that is, I don't believe in total immersion. And we have in past episodes, when we did layers, have proven you can't do total immersion in a game. Because at some point, you have to look at your character sheet and figure out that you have a plus 12 and tell the GM whether or not you hit. That's not immersive. Not at all. Right. So rather than being married to an idea of total immersion, I would say instead embrace the idea of micro immersion from time to time, have really immersive and in-depth scenes and from time to time metagame, like do both. Why would you hate the concept of metagaming? I don't know. I don't understand why people hate the concept of metagaming. On the off chance that people don't know what we're talking about in regards to metagaming, what we're saying is that metagaming is when you are using player level knowledge to make decisions in game. Now, we see this all the time. If you play a cooperative board game, Pandemic, for instance, right? And players are talking to each other about what to do before somebody takes their move, right? That's a type of metagame. In a role-playing game, that type of metagame and the example that this meme started with was the players were asking each other who had higher than a six in medicine just around the table. Like, you know, hey, does anyone have a higher than six in medicine? If not, I'll make the check. And that's just, you know, the idea that you would have the most skilled person make it. Is there a character version of that? There is. Bobbis, 
what thou art your medicine? Like, are you skilled, not skilled? You know, like, whatever. You could do that. Or you can just ask. Um, I mean, you even got the trope in a lot of things where one person's like, you know, I'm going to come over here and work on this. Are you kidding me? I'm the better doctor. You barely made it out of medical school. Get out of my way. Don't <laughs> yeah. be a hack. Yeah. That's, you know, you learned all your information out of that book. Whatever. <clears throat> it's easy enough to do that, but it's the same thing. It's basically the same thing. It's just that we're numerically doing it. Yeah. I just, <clears throat> it, it's, it's asking the question at one level, right? As if there's not allowed to ask any questions at the player level. It's not been my experience of how RPGs work. These kind of conversations can occur at every level. And the idea about why GMs might not like metagaming is the idea that the players are, as a group, cooperatively working, and I'm going to use air quotes here, against the GM. That's silly. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Now, the nature of the way that we all play role-playing games is that we play a cooperative game, and cooperative also includes the GM. Can I say why it's silly? Yeah, yeah. I was actually having this conversation with Ange for a little while when we were recording the Gnomecast. By the way, listen to the Gnomecast. Game balance is a myth. Game, yeah. game balance is a myth. Even in a game like Dungeons and Dragons where you're like, DCs are, are here and we have CR and whatnot. CR is a myth. Like it, it exists and it's there as a great guideline, but it does not provide game balance because there are too many variables that can change from group to group how the game plays out at the table. Mm-hmm. For instance, in a, in a tactical combat situation, if your game master is a high-level tactical master and can outplay the other people at the table, that throws off the, the skewing. If the group is of a high or low tactical yep. level, mm-hmm. including the game master, low tactical level, it throws off the game balance of the game. Yes. Yep. The terrain of the encounter that is being presented will throw off the game balance because CR does not account for that stuff. There's all kinds of stuff like that. That is just, like, those three variables in and of themselves create disparity in in game balance so who cares if you met a game i just wanted to chime in on on my feelings on especially that example who's got the higher medicine score here in theory the characters would already probably know yes Mm -hmm. Yes. so having the discussion as a character going hey who are you better at medicine than i am the characters would already know 100%. that. 100%. Unless they just walked into a room and met each other and they have no clue. Yeah, if you're the crew from Ronin. Yeah. Right? And, and then if that's we, a different story. If we were doing that, right? If I was running a Ronin game, I might at the beginning be like, hey, you are all like sketchy operators who don't know each other and don't initially trust each other. I would prefer, for tone purposes, you don't... Um, metagame. You can talk in character about your skills, but don't metagame. And then you get that moment like Sean Bean, right? Where he's talking all that shit about knowing his guns and stuff and you're just kind of, uh, you know, De Niro's looking at him like, Like "Mm." this guy's full of shit. Exactly. That to me is where the argument breaks down. Saying you should have this in character and be immersed. If you already should theoretically know the information, then it's better to out of character as players. Hey, remind me who's got the better medicine here so that we do this right. Yeah. Because if you're like, well, badassicus, do you have a better medicine than medicus over here? No, it sounds stupid when you're asking that question of something you should know. We're clearly playing that Roman horror game again, right? Yes, the Roman horror. (laughs) The only time that I think that metagaming can be a detriment to a game is when it slows the game down mechanically. I've been in games as a player and as a GM when... I've had players or GMs or fellow players who have done the thing where they're, okay, I'm going to cast my spell. So I'm going to, is it better to measure here? Is it better to measure here? I'm going to see it. That kind of thing does annoy me as both a player and a GM, but that's more of a 
tactical board game kind of thing. I'd rather just see somebody do something, but I also rather see the GM just say, you know, what are you doing? I'm casting fireball. Okay. You put it over there. Do I get six, six of them? Sure. Six are under that template. Yeah. Or, Hey GM, do I have a pretty good idea where the optimum place to put this is to get the most bodies? Yes. It's still metagaming, but it's shorter. Your first example makes reference and people didn't see it because they couldn't see your hands makes reference that there is a tactical battle mat on the table versus part of your other example, which is somewhat more theater of mind. I am, of course, a theater of mind. Like, if you tell me theater of mind, like, can I hit these six guys? I'll be like, yeah, probably, mm-hmm. sure. But there is a thing when you have it when you have it on the table about did you put it in the correct spot? Yeah, it's a big difference between tactical and theater of the mind. Yes. So. Yeah. Yes. But I but I get that right. And so like the stakes are up a bit higher when there is a board on the like when there is a map on the table and you need to point to a specific square. But all of that said, I think that in general. Players need to be prepared mm-hmm. for their turn. And I think if you're playing the wizard in a in a fantasy game, you need to understand the geometry of like where that fireball goes so that you can do that in a timely manner. I think some of this also comes from my time as a war gamer, where one of the rules was you measure, that's where you're putting it. Like you pick a spot and that's it. This thing of sitting there analyzing a table for five minutes, trying to pick the actual spot. As a war gamer, that annoys me as well. But as a GM, I I don't, that's the only time I don't like metagaming is when it slows down the game and takes us far out of immersion. Just asking something like who's got the highest medical skill, that's okay. That's the only thing I think of when I think of metagaming is I don't want it slowing down the game, but I have nothing against the concept of metagaming Mm -hmm. as who's got the best stats or something. And that's also a encouragement for players that should know something about the other people at the table to begin with. That is something, it's a different topic, but I think knowing your fellow players at the table makes a difference in how well you can role play in some games. So expanding on that idea of metagaming, right? There's the, so from the original meme, there is the idea of metagaming for tactical advantage, right? That's, you know, who's got the better skill for this, that kind of thing. But there's a whole lot more to metagaming. And this is why I think we feel strongly about it. There's a whole lot more to metagaming about talking about things like where you want a scene to go. Chris does this a lot in Ox, where he will talk about Tam's feelings in a metagame way to help remind everybody that like, oh, yeah, Tam still doesn't trust Gree. And that'll come out also in play. But Chris will help like reinforce that to clarify, to make sure that we're all on the same page, like during play. I do that because I'm not an actor, right? I'm not a trained actor. I cannot portray my emotions at the table like that, especially in one take. So I have to tell the players why I'm doing the things that I'm doing so that they can understand my yeah. motivations and the reasons that I'm taking the actions that I'm taking. I feel like that is a very good reason to metagame, especially if you're trying to get character arcs across an emotion when you can't act. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I, no. I think that's I, fine. No, I think it's actually increased the quality of play at the table because both Jerry and Bob and Phil know what I'm doing and where I'm trying to go. Yeah. I, and I've done things. I, I've, I've done this a lot with you guys and you guys have seen it in various games where I will ask you, like, where are you going with this? Mm-hmm. Like, before we make rolls or whatever, like, just where are you heading with this so I have some idea what the stakes are or where to put, like, how I want to push if you're going to roll ones, like, that kind of thing. Just tell me where, you know, you think, like, where do you think this, like, action yeah. is going? What's your goal? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is something that also comes from players and GMs trusting each other at the table. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the metagaming argument comes from GMs who don't trust their players and players who don't trust their GMs. 
Um, we've discussed this before about playing with people who, as a GM, the players might not trust that the GM is going to act in their best interests and be a fan of the players. And the players sometimes, the GM not knowing where the players are going because the players don't want to reveal too much information back and forth. Sure. And that kind of lack of communication often stymies a game and makes it feel like the metagame is more confrontational than it actually is. Yeah. And if you have that, so if you have that adversarial mindset, like on the, like if the table has that adversarial mindset, the problem for the GM, it's really like this weird, it's this weird illusion of a problem. So on the one hand for the GM, you are one brain against three to five brains. You are already at a disadvantage, except for the fact that you're the GM and can control the entire environment, arbitrate the mechanics and everything else. So there's like this weird like, oh, I can't have a metagame because they'll gang up on me. But at the same time, I can fuck with the entire world as I see fit. Uh, I'm I'm confused. What do you mean by it's one against like three to five? So if we're playing like, let's say we're playing adversarial. Like, let's just say I'm an adversarial GM. My, oh, my job is like, like oh. punish you guys. Okay, so we're going to play the... Are, are we actually going to talk about that? Like, did you, do we even give that any kind of credence? Uh, Should we? Let me say this. There are GMs out there that do that. And so that that's something that's, it's not a good thing, uh, but it happens. I'm with you. So why would we give it credence? Why wouldn't just say that you shouldn't play that way? I agree. Mm-hmm. I don't think you should play that way. I think that if you wanted to play that way, like you're like, hey, I want to play like hard, like I want to play hard tactically against you guys. You could do that in a session zero. Yeah. But I think that if your goal is, and I agree with you, right? Like, I mean, having come up through the eighties, where the phrase killer killer DM was born, I'm not a fan of it, never been a fan of it, and I've never seen a game that was better for it. My thing is that we're still coming from that era, and we still have GMs today, because I've seen it in things like, and I'm not blaming Adventures League, but I've, I've seen it in Adventures League, I've seen it in tabletop games, I've seen it in, where there is still that thing, that attitude, and you might not be playing with an adversarial GM, but if you have players who have had one in the past, as a GM, you sometimes need to communicate to the players that, I don't know how to say it's a safe place to do that. So in order to encourage that sort of metagaming, go ahead. So what we're really talking about is the techniques for making metagaming okay at the table and explaining that yes. as a game master, I'm not going to be adversarial. Is that what yes. we're really talking about? Yes. I'm just curious. I mean, I, I think we're we're talking about this in a broad, in some broad strokes. Sure, yeah. yeah. I think trust is a huge piece of it. I think the idea that uh, role-playing games work best as collaborative story engines, Mm -hmm. right? That's a thing that we've always, like we've talked about here. That's why I brought up the argument about game balance earlier, because if you're an adversarial GM, you can just kill everybody. I think part of it's also making sure that you put in some sort of story to the game that involves the players. Even if you're just running a module that is a straight start, kill stuff, finish kind of story. Because as soon as you involve the players in the story itself, they get involved. There's a big difference between running a scenario that has a plot and a point and a mystery to solve or something along that line and running something where the whole adventure is just, there's a keep, there's the caves of chaos, you're going to go from the keep, kill stuff, come back to the keep. That doesn't give a same sense of storytelling because there's no story introduced where if the GM can start to put a story out there and then ask the players to be co- uh, cooperative with it, it will encourage them to take those risks and will help to even out a little bit of that feeling of distrust or adversarialism that you sometimes see from players playing with a GM who is trying to be a friend of theirs in the game. There are things to add in. Like you said, how do we 
basically make it a safe place for players to metagame. Yes, I, I agree. <clears throat> uh, I, I think the techniques are, as you said before, saying to the players, tell me what you're going for. What, what is the point here? And if they balk at that, be like, look, I'm not going to want you have to say it. I'm not going to turn on you like. This is about seeing what you want to do, and we'll let the dice decide, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll even tell you what the DCs are off the bat, so you can see what I'm doing behind the screen a little bit. I love explaining mechanics to players, mm -hmm. because then they then they can play the game that we're playing, mm -hmm. aside from creating the story that we're telling. And then you have to back that up by following through on the thing that you just promised. Mm -hmm. And you do that two or three times, even at a table of people that you've never played with, and they will jump on board with you most of the time. Even if they've been with game masters in the past that don't do that stuff, that are more terrifying to play with in some ways where you're constantly being cautious. Now there, that is a play style and that's legit, right? Like I'm perfectly okay with that being a thing, especially if I'm playing like uh, basic D and D and it's about dungeon crawling and possibly getting murdered or playing DCC. Like sometimes the dice will turn on you and you'll get murdered. Like that's just the way it is. One of the things you can do though, to encourage that less than adversarial thing is to do things like put the dice rolls in front of the players unless it's absolutely necessary. They don't see it because when a GM is rolling behind a GM screen, there, there can be this feeling of, especially if things go badly for the players that did the GM fudge this in a bad direction, where if you're doing the dice in front of him, you know, hey, you, this guy, you know, he's going to roll to hit you. I rolled a six, so he, he got a 14, he hit you. Two things happen. Number one is the player saw the dice roll, and number two, they can do the math in their head and figure out that this guy's got a plus eight or something on that line, and it gives them a better sense of the GM's putting this in front of us. We know what they're doing, and they know what we're doing. And when, by doing this, you're also showing the players that you're trusting them a little bit, even if you're not saying it outright. It, it, it leads to more trust. Trust and communication is what I'm looking for here. Yeah, I mean, games are games are about communication. We talk about like talk to your players, but really, what we're doing is building trust. Mm -hmm. Like the communication mm -hmm. is about building trust, building a shared narrative space, building all of these things, and the metagame can help you do that. On another topic, if your argument against metagaming is that it's not that I want players not to cooperate, but I want everyone to be immersed, right? This is a different argument that we need to talk about, about the illusion of total immersion. If you are looking for like, well, I want all these moments where characters are talking to each other and doing those things. I will say that you can have immersion in periods, deep immersion mm -hmm. in various periods of the game and also have metagaming stuff where you're steering the the, you know, the course of the game, and then you're diving in to a deep scene where you're playing out the drama of some characters, and then maybe a medium immersion scene where we're doing some combat, which is like a mix of, you know, some role playing, but some mechanics like immersion is not a binary thing. You are not immersed or not immersed. There are levels of immersion you can get. And you can have pockets of really deep immersion in a super metagamey game. And it is still totally satisfying from a drama and actor point of view. Now, with that in mind, just what you said earlier and what Bob talked about earlier is that if you really get to a point where you feel like there hasn't been enough immersion and the players are, are metagaming a lot, there's nothing wrong with the GM saying, hey, that's great. Like people go, oh, who's got the best medical skills? GM say, hey, that's great. Do that in character. Yeah. Like you're not telling them, no, don't do that. You're saying, hey, that's great. Or I like that. Do that in character. Or as a GM, you can even encourage metagaming once in a while by saying something like, Christophus is down. So, <clears throat> all right. Christophus. So somebody says, well, we, well, he needs some healing. Great. All right. Who, as a GM, say, okay, who's got the best medical skill? If you ask that question, you're telling players at the table it's okay to do that. 
you're asking them who's got the best medical skill. They can discuss among themselves and you might get the odd role player, heavy role player who just does it in character, you know, either way you're saying it's safe here to do that. So, so are you like Jarius Myris, like captain of the Roman Legion? Or are you like, uh, I don't, I don't got one for Phil. I'm Geronimus. Geronimus? Geronimus is better. Phil. Yeah, I don't know. Anybody got a, anybody got a Roman one for Phil? Like, no, no, nobody can do this. Come I mean, on. it'll We're be Phyllis, but you no, know, that's no, bad. We no. could do, we could do better than that. Vecchionimus. Vecchionimus. Yeah. There we go. Vecchionimus. Um, <laughs> just thinking about this, I, you know, this idea of scales of immersion. By the right? way, we just met a game there. Yes. We stopped to like name everybody. Yep. So going back to the thing you said, Jer, sometimes as a GM, I will steer a player away from a certain check if I know it's about to cut in on the niche of another character. Mm-hmm. This happened in NBA, and I can't remember the specific case, but I'll tell you. There was a moment in NBA where somebody wanted to do some social engineering, and it wasn't going to be Sean. Sean's character is like totally geared for it and hadn't had a scene like that in a while. And I just as GM on a very metagame level was like, oh, I mean, like, yeah, you could do it. I'm like, but also like Ludo sitting there like Ludo didn't like he he isn't going out on, you know, he hasn't been going out on the mission, you know, and he's all social. Like, do you want to take him? And I think I think it was you or whoever was like, oh, yeah, right. We should totally have Ludo like take care of that. It Like it worked. But it was one of those cases where I as a GM like metagame the table to be like, oh, the player who's actually like wanted to make his character to do this thing is like benched right now. Can somebody like pull him into a scene? Like, and that's easy. It's an easy thing to run into because you can get lost in the action and the, the story of the moment Mm -hmm. with what's going on. And if you have a player like Sean, who sometimes isn't the most vocal, there's a good chance he might not have even said anything like, Hey, I'm the social guy. Maybe I should do that. And it's easy for other people to forget, oh, wait, Sean Sean created his character to do that. So having the GM step in and go, hey, let's do this, or hey, what about? That's that's good metagame. Also good game mastering. Yeah. And you can do that as a player at the table, too. Mm-hmm. You can metagame in a way that encourages other players. You could say something like, hey, we're going to go here. Why don't I bring so-and-so with me? Because they're good at, they're our hacker, or they're good at socializing, or even if your character is good at it, metagaming and saying this other person has the skill that's available, it's number one, increases you know cooperative play at the table. But you don't always have to wait for the GM to do that. If you as a player see something like that, stepping in and saying something is metagaming, but it also makes everybody at the table role play together. And that's good. Let's talk about how we can make it provide more moments of immersion, deeper immersion play. Like how do we go from being able to, to take those moments of metagame and then like if we want a game that's like 80% deeper immersion scenes and 20% the metagame. How do we get more towards that skew? I think it's easy if you set like a rhythm for this, like, hey, we're going to talk about like where the scene's going, who's going to be in the scene, and then we're going in scene, right? Sure. Like that's a real great way like to like to put those delineations in because that's what we're talking about. When metagaming just pops up in the middle of a scene, like let's say you're having a deep immersion moment and then I suddenly ask you like, hey, what is like, what's your what's your die type? For that like you know what's your you know trait level we've now bumped out of it correct so if we want to if we want to have deep emotion and stay there we need to partition when we're talking about mechanics when we're talking about metagame to a place that's like outside of that scene i don't always do that in games because i don't force that 
But like, for instance, when you and I were having that um, really good talk with Keoli and um, Tam, I purposely was like, cool, I'm now not talking about anything else in the game. Like, I'm not going to ask for a role. I'm like, we're just having this like deep conversation about these two people trying to figure out their relationship and just stayed under. And you were actually the one that signaled we should come out. Because in my director head, we needed to cut to a different place. Yeah, you were right. Mm -hmm. You're right. And if you hadn't done it eventually, I think I would have pulled, I would have pulled back. Yeah. So I think there's ways to do that deliberately. I I absolutely think there's ways to do that deliberately. And I think there's ways to structure your game. And I don't think your game has to be like some indie game to do this, but I think there are absolutely ways to structure your game where you can say like, let's have this deep scene right now with character and character go. It's interesting to me to think of it as like deep scene, right? Because where it's character and character, because that is probably the most common place where you can get those immersive experiences. Mm -hmm. But how do you do it in other places? Like how do you do it when there's like action sequences or like combat scenes? Because you have way more mechanics often in traditional gameplay in conflict scenes. I'll call them conflict scenes that you can't do that stuff. Uh, Jerry, did you have a response to that? Yeah. So for example, your character, you're in the middle of a fight and we're playing Dungeons and Dragons and your character is the rogue and would like to um, have somebody to blank with or do something so they can get some advantage, they can actually just role play that. Hey, Christophus, you know, I could use a hand over here or, hey, my flank's open. I'll be right there, Geronimus. Okay. Or you're getting low on hit points. And so we need some help from our cleric. So we call to Bridgetus and she, uh, so tell her, you know, hey, I'm getting my ass handed to me over here. That sort of thing, you know, and then you nod to them and say, you know, yeah, I'm down on hit points. But simply stating things in game, in character, you're getting the same point across. And then you can add the metagame to the underlying thing. Like, yeah, I'm down to six hit points or whatever. That's one way you can do it just in the middle of combat. Have a conversation. Have your character say or do something. Saying something often works best that does two things. Number one, it lets the rest of the party know what's going on. But also, as soon as you say that, you're also inviting somebody else to do just what Chris did. You know, I'll be right over there. And setting everything up ahead of time. And you're not telegraphing anything. The GM is not going to suddenly put somebody in, in, in Chris's way um, just because now they know that Chris is moving in that direction. I think it's worth noting that, again, on the scale of immersion, right, conversations that don't engage any mechanics, right, is the most immersive experience you can have because no other part of the game touches it. And then sliding back from that, as mechanics get engaged, it becomes slightly less immersive, slightly less immersive. The next level of immersion up from that is a character conversation, but the GM says some stuff that's going on in the background. Like you hear the floor creaking, the door suddenly opens, right? There's like, that's a little less immersive. And then if you have to make a skill check. And so where you get to like, can you make combat super immersive is actually really hard. And I think Jerry, Jerry hit on it, right? By taking some of the metagaming and putting it into character conversation is good, but you can't run away too much from damage, hit points, conditions, roles, and all that stuff. The procedures of the game actually dictate how immersive you can be with the game. You yeah. can be more immersive with a game like Dungeon World than you can with a game like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. But you can even be more immersive with a game like Swords Without Master than you can with Dungeon 100%. World. 100%. Because while, while Swords is a very procedural game, the game is based on the, narr- on the narrative. Yeah. So uh, if you're looking for an immersive experience, not that you can't have it with D&D, but it might not be the, it'll be a lot more work to get an immersive experience in a combat situation or an action sequence with D&D. Now, D&D, like if it's just an action sequence of like chasing or running through the streets and things like that, you can do better because there's less procedure. Because sure. you could just call for skill checks as you're like describing how you're running down yeah. alleyways and on the thieves road or whatever you and happen it, to be doing. And it's a preference thing. 
Some groups may be totally fine that like when combat starts, there's a level of immersion that they're comfortable with and the rest of it can like, maybe it's not very immersive and they're just like, no, no, this is fun. Like we, like when we play the game, there's a part of the game I like to play, which is rolling dice and putting my guy on the map and doing stuff. And then at other points in the game, there are times where I want to have a deep conversation or confront, you know, somebody who betrayed me and have those dramatic moments. And one does not exclude the other in terms of fun. You do not, you know, like this is, this is the idea that immersion can come when you need it. That was the best use of fun in a discussion I've ever heard. Cause you said in terms of fun, because fun is usually meaningless, but I'm like, Oh no, that made perfect sense. Like mm-hmm. that normally you can't say fun in it, have it actually have no, I, any kind I know. of meaningful impact in a, in a, in one of these discussions, but it worked that time. Fun is very subjective. Yep. Does anybody else have anything they want to say about this before we get out of this? Because we've been going around for about 30 minutes and yeah. I mean, we've, we said a lot. Oh, just one last thing. And that's that if you're doing a combat or some kind of encounter and the player does say or do something that, references some sort of mechanic, then I would say that as a GM, feel free to lean into that. If the player says something like, you know, I'm getting my ass kicked here, instead of having the bad guys all just gang up on them, have one of the bad guys make a comment like, you know, yeah, you are, or something more pithy than that. And you'll turn to face them so that they're focused on them so that the other players can step in and do something encounter-wise. This is also something Chris is good at. Generally, if we say something, one of his bad guys is going to mock us in some way, but in a way that makes it a story, not just them sitting there making fun of us. It's a way to, uh, it's another way to reinforce the players that yes, I acknowledge that you're doing a little bit of metagaming, but I'm not punishing you for it. I'm going to react to it the same way you are and make it more of a encounter. When you said I insert things about the monsters or the adversaries, when I used to play D and D with Mark Napic and we played a a long running Eberron campaign playing fourth edition, Mark wouldn't mock us as bad guys. Mark would taunt us as Mark and we would taunt him back when we would beat the ever living love out of his people as ourselves it was actually pretty fun so like there is a level of enjoyment that can come from that if you're with your friends that are okay with that that have started that there is no wrong bad fun i mean there is wrong bad fun but there is no like whatever your flavor of fun is like you can still have it and when the players and gms are rocking each other that itself is metagame it is yeah it's totally me that was totally a metagame so i guess to put a cap on this thing right what we're what we're saying is look metagaming's not bad immersion is also not bad right metagaming is good immersion is good there is easily a place in every game where both of these can coexist going back to that meme the punishment part right punishing players in general is just a dickish move for whatever it doesn't matter punishing players is a dickish move rather than cooperatively changing the game to the way you want it to be that gm could have instead of just oh i raise it 5 points when you metagame could have simply said, Hey, what I would prefer is to go back to what Jerry said, which is I would prefer if you said those things to each other as characters in combat, rather than saying it outside of combat, but you don't have to punish people for it. Work on cooperating and find spaces for both metagaming and for uh, immersion in your games. Well, I hope you enjoyed that off the cuff. Now I'm going to do something else uh, new because I can do that when I have these opportunities. This is a segment called Campaign Conversations. I'm actually going to talk about my uh, Spelljammer a little bit and a couple of the changes that I made and why. So first off, if you are one of the four players playing in this game or are playing The Light of Zarius from the Spelljammer book, there are spoilers everywhere, so you should stop listening. That being said, let us continue. I like parts of this adventure. The thing that I don't like about it is that it doesn't start in a way that helps the game master 
make it meaningful to the players because the plot is that your planet's going to be destroyed by astral elves and it kicks you right into space in the first session right away with a disaster movie type encounter now that's fine i i don't i don't mind that uh, i think it's a, a great way to get the action going and you know that in media res go 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 kind of thing but i wanted something different so i reworked the beginning and uh, wanted to give the players a chance to care about the world that they were going to save. So I gave them a choice in our session zero. They could either have flashback scenes to flesh out these moments of care, like things that they cared about concerning their planet, or they could have a few levels of play on the planet. Uh, the campaign normally starts at level five. If we did this, it would start at level three and we'd play a little story arc out. They chose to play out a story arc on the planet. So the next thing I did is I had each player create something on the planet that they could interact with, something that they could care about. This could be an NPC or a location, something like that. Then I crafted an adventure that's thematically appropriate to what's going on with the bigger adventure. This happens to be fighting a king and uh, a kingdom that's pushing the people too hard with taxation while not providing the protection and services that the kingdom should be providing. Also, this kingdom and, and the king and the nobles, they're working with the astral elves to destroy the world so that they can have a comfy retirement package in the elves' solar system. The plot of the adventure is the astral elves, these Zarian elves, drop a bunch of seeds onto the planet, which suck all the light out of the planet to send back to their star in the Zarian system to power it because it's dying slowly. And by powering it, it keeps them alive because they're immortal because of that star. There you go. That's that's the plot of the of the whole campaign. In this version of the game, they show up on the planet, which is not how it actually goes in the, in the original adventure, and make a deal with the nobility of this kingdom to help them plant these seeds instead of just firing the seeds from outer space, which is what happens in the original adventure. Through three sessions, and each of these sessions are only about two and a half hours long. That's including a session zero. I think it's worked pretty well. I seeded the plot of the world being destroyed with these weird crystal seeds. They found right away a cargo of these crystal seeds, having taken it from the king's folk. I also then put a plot in the game where a crime slash bandit lord is putting the squeeze in the local populace. I wanted to do that to show that the kingdom and the nobility weren't doing their job holding up their end of the bargain with their taxation because you know kings and serfs like kings are supposed to protect the peasants and through that protection the peasants are supposed to pay the king it's a pretty basic summary of serfdom so with that there's my tie-in to the planet like hopefully the story arc will make the players care about the people on the planet there's like a little town that they made called maris Astralis. i came up with it um they populated some of the people inside of it in places they've had plenty of chances to interact with them uh create scenes and and dramatic moments where they actually feel connected to the people. So after that, the next thing I wanted to touch on was the through line of the adventure, because there's a lot of cool stuff in the adventure, but there's not a really strong through line because it's based on the old Flash Gordon movie, which that movie's not great. The only thing that's good about it is the soundtrack by Queen. I've said it a few times on different podcasts, but it's true. Saving the planet is a solid motivation. I mean, they keep their stuff there, and that stuff has meaning now because of what we're doing but I think that the middle of the adventure is missing some connective tissue. The players, it's Spelljammer. They knew they were going to be on a ship. They wanted a ship and a crew to interact with. Now, right off the bat, there's the Moon Dancer. That's the first ship that they get on. That's the first ship that takes them into wild space. But it isn't supposed to be the only Spelljammer that they fly around on. And Captain Sartell, who they're supposed to leave the planet with during that first session, they're out of the game pretty quick. So there's not a lot of chance to make a connection with that character. They... they Basically, get them off planet, drop them off at the Rock of Brawl, which is a Spelljammer space city, and say, see you later. I wanted her to matter more. So she's a big part of this initial story arc. They're on the Moon Dancer. They all got to create a crew member on the Moon Dancer, the player character. So that's another character that they are invested in. 
And I wanted Captain Sartell to be something. So later in this campaign, uh, right in the middle of it, the PCs are supposed to run into a princess of the Zarian space empire. She plays a, an important role to help the player characters get into the Zarian space empire later to, to stop it. Because, you know, it's space opera, essentially. Like, we're going to go stop the big bad evil empire from destroying the planet. Like, that's the point of the game. I just decided that Sartell was the princess. Just a different version, right? Like, uh, I'm changing things, obviously, so I have to do some work to do that. So if she's the princess of the space empire, the Zarian empire, what's she doing here? Well, she didn't want to be bound by the responsibilities and horrors of what her people were doing. So instead of sticking around, she just left to become a spelljammer captain as soon as she could. And she hasn't been home in hundreds of years. You know, she's immortal. <laughs> Uh, the planet the game is starting on, it just happens to be the most recent planet she's called home. While here, she ran into these people, became friends with them, and found out that they were being oppressed by a king and a kingdom that was a problem. And she'd been here for a while, so the previous king wasn't so bad. Pretty decent person, uh, all things considered. But his son, who became king after he died, is not. So because she was friends with all these people and felt a connection to them, she joined up with the resistance and also found a way to maybe alleviate some of her guilt to right some of the wrongs because of what her people are doing out in space. Like, like stay here and help her friends fight a, fight a rebellion. Why not? Because she's the princess, she becomes much more important to the story. And I think that can allow for much more drama as the PCs can see their friend who they'll be adventuring with for a long time and who they're part of this crew already when the game starts. They've been part of the Moondancer crew for like two months. They're going to see Sartell get put into some tough family situations. One of them on the planet, there's a astral elf here who was the astral elf that she was engaged to be married to he doesn't know she's here she doesn't know he's here when they run into each other it should be interesting i can't wait to see what happens i love me some good you know love story drama type stuff it also helps with a few other things so if sartell is a spelljammer captain for a long time she can help be their guide now there's a character named commodore crux who eventually is supposed to be their guide he's a gif those are the, the hippopotamus people so i can just have sartell and commodore crux be old friends like they used to hang out together why not right Probably right before she came here, she was adventuring around with him. I haven't decided yet. I'll figure it out later. It's not super necessary at the moment. But I mean, I have ideas about it. I've been thinking about this for weeks. But that will make the introduction of Commodore Crux in Chapter 4 a little different. Then I think this is cool. I can start playing around with the idea of a fleet of ships because they're going to need a fleet to deal with the Zarian Empire. I know this. So I can start seeding the idea of that here instead of just hitting them over the head with it in like chapter six. Because Crux has a living ship. A living ship is a ship that has a Treant attached to it. And that Treant's name is Starbow. I'm looking forward to seeing how this all plays out. I mean, I like games with a lot of NPCs, so I don't really mind playing them all and giving them all, or at least trying to give them all distinct personalities. I think it's a lot of fun. But I think having her be the princess here and eventually having that be revealed, which I don't know when it's going to get revealed. It could get revealed from Commodore Crux. It could get revealed when they run into that, that elf on the planet. Either way, it's going to be a, a fun, interesting thing to see what happens. And then she can tell the player characters what's going on. Like, look, my family is bad and they do bad things. And we should probably stop them from doing bad things if we want this planet to survive. I like that. I like that through line. I like having her there. And I think that will help this really cool string of encounters have a little bit more connectivity to it. So that's my campaign discussion for this time. If you enjoyed this and you would like to hear more, let me know. You can email me at chris at misdirectedmark.com or hit me up directly if you're in the Slack room. You know, that Slack room that you can get to through our Patreon. That's a Patreon slash MMP. And when I get a few more sessions in, I'll do another of these campaign conversations. So that's all for this episode of the Misdirected Mark podcast. I wanted to say thank you all for listening. And I want to give a special thank you to all of our patrons, especially the ones that that are on the list that get, you know, shout outs, which I'm going to shout out all of them 
gaming and BS style right now. Jim Schmitty, Andrew Daisy, Andy Olson, John Carney, Craig, Tiberius, Starcrash Smith, GM Gerrymander, Eric Bontz, Kevin Lovecraft, Troy Sandlin, The Old School DM, Chris Constantine, Miko Froelich, Eric Simon, Kathleen Halperin, Lars Henrik Evan, Christopher Gemelch, Michael Beck Asperum, Joseph No, Carlos, Ryan Megala, Pep Talema, Brian King, Michael Draper, Cubano, Alice Crya, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brantley Harris, Theodore Atkinson, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Joseph Peralta, JT Evans, Andrew Dempsey, Eric Mengi, Brian Kurt, Steve Bissonnette, My Brett, Chris Steele. I never can do that as well as Phil, but there you go. Jared Ratcher, Eileen Barnes, Brandon Barnes, Victor Wyatt, Noah Bond, Pierre Borsdorf, Tentacle Duck, Kevin Cork, Aaron Lakowski, Craig Duffy, Mike Olson, Padme's lover, Joe Rosso, Chris Mead, Dan Simmons, Jason Pitt, Gene Lorber, Ryan Bolter, Richard Drewain, and Jeff Stevens, Troy Pickleman, David Walker, John, Glenn Seiler, and Robert Dorgan. Thank you all so much for being those patrons who get the shoutouts. It's, it's lovely to have you. Hopefully we can uh, chat in the Slack Room for Life. I'm always there. Feel free to ask questions. Before we get out of here, I'd like to say you should probably check out some other shows on the Misdirected Mark Network. We have a bunch of them. We have like well over 1,300 episodes of podcast recorded, plus like over 300 bonus episodes of content on the Patreon. So if you're, if you're looking to listen to something, feel free. They're all over the place. If you're looking for another show to listen to specifically, I really enjoy Thaco with Advantage these days. This is our very new D&D show with Jared and Ange, where they talk about Dungeons and Dragons. They do like a campaign journal at the beginning, which lets you know what they're playing and the things that they're trying in their games. And then they usually cover some interesting topic, like they've been doing the one D&D play test lately. Well, with that, this has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.